0: Welcome to Pottery Visited, episode 61. I'm Tori. And I'm Shay. Today we are covering chapter one of Goblet of Fire, the Riddle House. Or, as we like to call it, Frank Bryce and the Oops. He's dead. So we got a question. Oh, yes. Our first, uh, I guess, question, it was through Spotify from M. Ryan saying, uh, why do you think Harry is an idiot? Not hating, just wondering from our episode, uh, episode 45, Tea Time with Lupin. And I'm assuming that, I don't know what we were saying in that episode. I feel like we were probably calling Harry an idiot. (laughs) Like when we call Harry an idiot, I feel like it's a term of like, it's with endearment. Like he's very impulsive that we don't really, we're not impulsive people. And he just does... Dumb thing sometimes because he's a kid, so we call him an idiot, but like with endearment. Like we're like his aunts being like, oh, all Harry, what are you doing? It's definitely a little bit kids these days.
1: Like he's not necessarily an idiot for a 13-year-old boy, but he is a 13-year-old. But also coming from us anxiety girlies who are overthinkers and Slytherin girlies who are over planners, uh, he definitely is a act first think later person in a lot of circumstances. So he responds to things immediately and often doesn't take time to, like, think of what would be the best response or what the potential consequences of his actions are. And while that's very common for a lot of people, for us specifically, it's kind of like, um, what about these 17 easier and less dangerous alternatives there, Harry? So when we call Harry an idiot, we mean he's 13 years old and also not quite... Thinking things through enough, given the level of risk and the severity of the potential consequences of his actions.
0: Yeah, but if anyone else has any questions, you can apparently leave them on Spotify. Didn't know that. Yeah, if anyone has any other questions, we'd love to answer them. So before we kind of jump in, I wanted to just talk a bit about Goblet of Fire. Some, some nice... Facts I found online. Ooh, I love facts. So this book was uh, published in 2000. Y2K. And this is actually the first Harry Potter book that was uh, published in the UK and um, the US at the same time. And it it sold uh, 3 million copies in its first weekend, I believe, in the US. Wow. And Goblet of Fire was the last Harry Potter book to come out the year after the previous, because after this one... Uh, Order of the Phoenix doesn't come out till 2003. So I believe there is, I don't know if it's confirmed or not, there is ideas that um, the author kind of rushed this book because she was, at the time, they wanted a Harry Potter book out every year. And then she put her foot down for Order of the Phoenix and she's like, no, you know what? I'm taking my time. and The book's coming out when it comes out. Isn't this one the longest though? It looks, I mean, I'm just
1: looking at it physically on my shelf and it looks like the thickest.
0: Order of the Phoenix is bigger.
1: I mean, to be fair, if the author was putting out one book a year every year, that's pretty, I mean... I'm not an author, so putting out anything is unattainable. But like the thickness of the first three books is attainable for someone who writes full time. I do not know if... Like, this is a bigger undertaking. The expectation to have one out a year when the books are this size is a lot less reasonable than the expectation to have them out one a year when they were the smaller size. Yeah. It's a thick book. What I'm saying is when I hold this in one hand, I could hold the other three books in the other hand and, like, it feels like I'm getting an equal workout with both arms.
0: And uh, I have this potential I guess like lore bit of like a potential plot hole but um I was looking this up and Goblet of Fire was originally going to have a new Weasley introduced it was going to be a second cousin called Mafalda and she was going to be a Weasley second cousin and she's going to be in Slytherin and she was going to play basically the part that Rita Skeeter ended up doing and Rita Skeeter was actually put in to replace Mafalda because she caused too many plot holes with like things that she wouldn't be able to know about Harry just being a student and whatever. Mm. So Rida Skeeter was put in to uh, replace her, but it's kind of um, brought up that Goblet of Fire kind of has some weird kind of plotful stuff. And it could be because um, this wasn't realized till she was like halfway through writing the book. So she had to go back and kind of like figure out how to replace Mafalda because it wasn't working. I think I'm happier
1: this way. The idea that the author would add in another like bad character and put them in Slytherin because bad character just annoys me. I'm like, there are bad people in other houses.
0: Oh, and this is, for the Harry. this movie, for a couple player movie, it was the first one to be considered uh, being split into two parts. The director wanted to do that, but Warner Brothers was like, no, we're not doing that. Interesting. I
1: feel like it would have been hard to do that with this book because there's three tasks, and it would have felt incomplete to end before the tournament is over, but it would
0: have felt weird
1: to have a movie where the
0: tournament doesn't start. I think it was more of the idea that if they split this one in half they probably would have had to split the last books after this in half and like I don't think at the time I don't think Warner Bros. thought that it was like worth it mm. obviously they did it for the last one and it became kind of like a thing yeah, so before we jump in I thought we could just talk about our overall thoughts or memories about Goblet of Fire when I got this out of the bookshelf I was like oh this book I'm so excited for it but um after Prisoner of Azkaban which I say is like my favorite book nostalgic and it's first book I read and it has all the things I like but Goblet of Fire is probably the my next favorite book and it, I think it's the book I probably read the most out of the series like I read this a lot like reread it so it has multiple settings and new characters and the introduction of crushes and growing up and it has all of the things I also like and um have a fun story so when I, I read this book when I was in the fourth grade so it's probably like 10 or 11 and we had a book up report assigned, and I wanted to do this book because I started reading it and I I, I love this book, but my mom convinced me it was too big and I could I wouldn't be able to finish it in time, so she made me read Little Woman instead, and I did read Little Woman, but as a ten year old I had I couldn't relate to any of it. I just didn't like it. I found it kind of boring. Yeah, it's uh so because I was trying to do the project and I was like the plot of Little Women and I'm like I don't know, everyone's sad, like I couldn't relate to it at all as a ten year old.
1: To husband or not to husband is the plot of Little Women. Not to say it's not a literary classic and wonderful, but the plot is to husband or not to husband.
0: <laughs> I was like, screw you, mom, I'm gonna read this book. And I'm not gonna, screw you, I'm gonna read this book and do this book report and it's gonna be awesome. And that's what I did. <laughs> I actually found-
1: I love you as a spite reader. I love that that's your rebellion. You're like, I'm gonna read this book so hard. That'll show you, mom.
0: <laughs> yeah, she was impressed. I finished that book. I also did a great book report. I actually found a uh, part of like the part, uh, I made like this pamphlet I had to do for it, which lists like all like, the characters and the plot and stuff like this that I made for it. So I'll post it on the Instagram because it's obviously really bad misspelled 10 year old stuff, but like it brought back a lot of memories. When we were first talking about our different copies of Goblet of Fire, I realized that my original copy of Goblet of Fire is uh, covered in scribbles courtesy of my brother. <laughs> Yeah, that's the difference between being the oldest child like Tori
1: is and the youngest child like I am is Tori's books have like scribbles and torn pages and my books are perfectly fine and in exactly the condition I leave them in, which is, I mean, I open my books all the way to read them. So like maybe there's some cracks on the spine, but like besides that, they're pretty mint.
0: My books have drama like me. <laughs> it's
1: fine. So um, one of the things I love about this chapter is that it's another one of those very rare chapters where it is not written in Harry's perspective and I always think it's so interesting to read those when I look at this chapter I think it's incredibly well written and just a bit like almost a level above a lot of the writing for most of the chapters. And I think maybe to some extent, the author is limited by writing from the perspective of such a young kid. Like you're sort of limited to Harry's interpretation. So you you sort of have that limitation in order to write it authentically from that perspective, but that limitation wasn't on this chapter. So it's written slightly differently. And in a way that I actually really, really enjoy. I also looked into it because I wanted to see like, how many chapters there actually are in the series that are not in Harry's perspective. And there are not a lot, but the majority are actually the first chapters in books. So like book one, chapter one, book four, chapter one, book six, chapter one, and I think chapter two, book seven, chapter one are all not in Harry's perspective. I think that's such an interesting way to start a book in a series where almost every chapter is not in Harry's perspective. I think that's so
0: compelling. Yeah I think this is the first chapter it's not really connected to Harry too like the first chapter of uh, the first book obviously is very connected to Harry but this is like about Voldemort. It's not really about Harry at all. Like we only even really know this is a Harry Potter book because Riddle is in the chapter title and it's with the Riddle family and that's our connection to Voldemort. I also found it really interesting that um, when the villain describes like the Riddle family, they were very like unpopular and unlikable. I mean, fuck the bourgeoisie, am I right? (laughs) So I just found that that's something that they have that maybe Voldemort got from his dad, you know, just being- A dick. Yeah, just being awful.
1: Yeah, that checks out. I I already said I love this chapter. I think it's so interesting. But I think it's such an enjoyable journey. Like, we get the full sort of almost life story of Frank. We get to understand that he went to the war. We get to understand how people see him in the village. We get to understand this person and this backstory of how the town sees him and why the town sees him that way. And, like, we get so much information about this one guy who is only relevant at all for this one chapter. And he's kind of barely relevant in this chapter. He sort of just serves as the vessel through which we experience the transportation for the information. Like, he just he just gets us there. He doesn't actually contribute to the plot in any way, but we get so much backstory of him.
0: Yeah, I feel like this book kind of really relies on like the narration being like fish out of water type where you need a person that also knows nothing like the reader. And so they learn information with the reader.
1: But I really, I like that. I thought it was so, and he's so obscure. Like he's so not what you would expect, just this random muggle man. And I really love all of the bits that sort of focus on Frank. Like you get this slice of small town life and gossip at the local pub from the chefs and the you know, everyone who knew the Riddle family, who didn't know the Riddle family. And what I enjoy besides the fact that we get so much Frank is the fact that they tell us so much about the Riddle House itself. Because I am an old spooky house girly. Like, I'm a slut for an old spooky house. So the fact that they're giving us so much about the house in itself, I I really live for that. And to some extent, when they talk about the house, and they talk about how the house wasn't lived in for a long time after the murder of the Riddles, I think that's so interesting because they don't imply that people couldn't stay in the house because maybe Voldemort was coming back and messing with them. They sort of imply that like the house carried the memories of the traumatic event. And it's like the house carries that energy and that's what makes people leave. And I love the idea that buildings themselves have memories and can hold feelings and give off auras of their own. Cause we get that a bit at Hogwarts with like ghosts and stuff. Like they actually continue to live there and represent what happened to them. But it's interesting. that This is almost like it's a muggle house and a wizard may have done the killing, but, like, even muggle houses have the ability to hold history and emotions and feelings, and I just, I love that as a concept, and, like, it's just, it makes me very happy. It warms my cold, spooky girl heart.
0: My main... I guess question of this chapter is how Voldemort is like existing, because obviously we see that he has some kind of body. It's not really talked about, but like obviously Frank sees it and it disturbs him so much. And he's able to hold a wand to kill Frank. Cause like the last we see of him is like, he's just like a memory from Chamber of Secrets. And in book one, he was, he was on the back of Quirrell. So like, he didn't really have a body. So we're, I'm like, but what, how is he existing at this point? What is he? <laughs> what is he is basically my question. I always think
1: about people, like physically people exist in like three layers. There's the mind and the soul, which exists kind of inside the brain or as a ghost, sort of the ethereal. And then there's like the skeleton, which is the bones. And then there's like the meat suit that goes on top. And I feel like, The way I'm picturing Voldemort here is he's kind of rigid. Like I kind of feel like his bones are still learning to get firm. Kind of like babies when they're first born and like their skulls haven't fully connected. So I feel like he's almost just meat suit and soul. So he's kind of like a blob. A stiff blob. (laughs) But also like when they talk about him holding his wand, because I'm picturing him as sort of very small and not firm enough to fully exist and stand on his own. I'm kind of picturing like, have you seen those videos of people who have pet lizards and if you pass them something, they'll just hold it. So it's like someone's lizard holding like a toy sword or like something ridiculous. That's kind of like a little lizard hand. I don't know what this is, but I'm holding it and clenching it because it was put in hand. That's kind of how I'm picturing Voldemort with his wand.
0: Yeah, but Frank overhears uh, Voldemort and Wormtail discussing their plan. So Wormtail's back. Back to being a spineless git, am I right? Voldemort's actually like really mean to Wormtail and he, Wormtail just like doesn't do anything. Like this guy can't do anything to you, really. Like he relies on Wormtail to keep him alive and he's just being a complete like asshole to Wormtail, calling him spineless and weak and whatever, like he is. But like any normal person will probably be like, you know what, I'm done with this abuse, I'm, I'm leaving.
1: Yeah. I think it's a little bit that Wormtail is entirely run by fear. Like that's his primary emotion, his primary existence for everything is fear and self-preservation. Yeah. And like, so he wouldn't at any point be willing to risk his self-preservation for anything else. Like he has no pride he clearly has no self-esteem and someone with low self-esteem I can I can understand why you would take a lot of shit in certain situations because it's just yeah you're like I don't know maybe that's how Voldemort wants to treat me he's right maybe I deserve I don't know I think he's got self-esteem issues because his friends were serious and James and I think they might not have been the most supportive of him at all times so he doesn't know what it's like to be treated well so like The scale of I'm being treated poorly and should probably yeet Voldemort into a garbage chute versus I'm being treated the way my friends treat me who are my friends and that's good treatment is like it's a really small scale for Wormtail because he doesn't have the experience of someone like treating him as a person with value.
0: But uh, Wormtail's like really pushing like we don't need to use Harry Potter for this plan. So I feel like the... Like life debt that he owes Harry from the end of Prisoner of Azkaban kind of weighing on him a bit. Yeah.
1: Also, I wonder if, I never really think about it this way, but like partially Wormtail could be like, he saved my life, kind of. I can save his once. We'll be even. Maybe he's afraid of Harry too. He's like, Voldemort's really big and scary, but Harry's really small and also scary. <laughs> I don't want him after me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But uh, Baltimore kind of reveals a little bit of like, I guess, foreshadowing for like, kind of the main part of the plan where his faithful servant who is at Hogwarts is going to help him. Yeah, his faithful
1: servant. And I think like we know now to whom he's referring. But the first time I read that, I'm trying to remember who I would have assumed it was because because they're giving us this hint The author wants us to spend our time reading the book as a mystery. Who is the faithful servant? Who is helping Voldemort? Who is actually on Voldemort's side? And because we haven't met the character that it's actually referring to yet, it keeps us suspicious and has us pointing fingers throughout the series. And like, I think at this point in the book, for me, the options are kind of like, okay, it could be Snape because he's shady, even though I love him. But it, like he's a suspect the way he's portrayed. Uh, Lucius Malfoy is a shady guy. He fucked shit up in book two and then sort of wasn't around too much in book three. So like we have those suspects. But then as the story progresses, they sort of present a lot of other red herons like Igor Karkarov and uh, Ludo Beckman. <laughs> So like, it's really interesting that like, they give us this tidbit, even though we don't have the necessary information to answer that question, who is his faithful servant? Just to keep us suspecting, keep us suspicious, keep us playing guess who.
0: But uh, Voldemort kind of foreshadows Wormtail's reward in his words, as he says that, you know, Wormtail will do this thing for him. And he's like, oh, many of my followers would give the right hand to do this.
1: I love that. Voldemort has jokes, it turns out, you know? Dramatic irony and jokes.
0: And so we also find out that they have basically kidnapped uh, Bertha Jorkins.
1: Who we know nothing about, which is so funny. They talk a lot about Bertha Jorkins and we're like, who the fuck is Bertha Jorkins? And also it's the worst name ever, Bertha Jorkins. So Voldemort's trying to sort of manipulate Wormtail a bit while he talks about Bertha. And he's like, no, no, it would be an insult to her memory not to to use the information we extracted from her for evil. It would simply be an insult. And I'm like, oh, Voldemort. I think she'd rather be alive. (laughs) I think she'd rather be alive or, like, spitefully see you not benefit from the information she eventually gave you. I think that would be more satisfying. But, alas, you know, it's Voldemort. I suppose we can't expect much of him. (laughs) I also think it's, uh interesting that like frank is out there listening to voldemort chatting with peter for a pretty long time and like voldemort's supposed to be all occlumency king of the hill so powerful wow you're so good at everything you do voldemort and like there's just like an old muggle whose bones probably crack who's got a cane who's walking up a creaky staircase and voldemort just like does not sense him there and i think that's Embarrassing. I think that's embarrassing.
0: (laughs) It probably shows the kind of the weakened state that Voldemort's in, that he's really reliant on Wormtail and his pet snake. Because, like, he can't really do the things that he used to be able to do. And if uh, the snake didn't come when it did, maybe Frank would have, like, you know, done something. I mean, he would have called the
1: police, probably, because that seemed like it was his plan. And then the police would show up and Voldemort would kill them. (laughs) And also, the fact that Voldemort is so weak, he can't sense that really, Peter Pettigrew could have really just yeeted him out a window. Like he really could have been like, actually, never
0: mind. (laughs) Yeah, Peter had, you know, the self esteem and existence to be like, you know what, screw this. Drop him in a puddle. And
1: that's that case closed. (laughs) I think it's really cute that they talk about Nagini all curled up on a rug by the fire. Like they talk about it like Frank is horrified like there's a snake like some perverted version of a dog but like I don't actively dislike snakes so I think it's so cute to picture Nagini all curled up by the fire on a rug like toasty warm living his cozy life. I think about this chapter that is really interesting is that obviously on the original reading I just did not expect Frank to die. Like we just spent a full chapter getting to know this guy. He has no at all relevancy to any of the story we've known up to this point. So you sort of start to think maybe he's relevant to the story going forward. And then they just kill him. And like, it's a little bit jarring because up to this point, we hear about characters dying. Like Harry remembers his parents dying, kind of. And we hear about people who've died in the past. And sure, we hear, we see deaths of like, villains like we kind of see Quirrell's death but he's a villain so you don't sympathize with him so up to this point it's kind of like as a reader you could assume that the only characters who die in these books are bad guys and so reading this happen in a chapter so early in this book really makes the reader kind of like grow up like it's like oh you thought these were happy children's fairy tales no grow up this nice old man is getting murdered and that's what they do nice old man who was very brave in those last moments he was talking back he was starting to call the cops he was being incredibly brave and he might not have known the full extent to how much danger he was in because he doesn't know Voldemort and he doesn't know magic but he knew he was in a lot of danger and he still stood up for himself and so you like him you respect him you think all right this guy's swell and then they just kill him yeah i think his death
0: in like how sudden it kind of happens kind of is foreshadowing for like the tone of this book. It's like a loss of innocence. Like Harry kind of loses his innocence in this book and it's a turning point for the rest of the series. And it's also as a reader, like this is a lot more, um, the tone's definitely a lot darker in this book.
1: Yeah. It's chapter one and they've basically like, the author has told us the stakes are now higher. Good guys are going to start dying. Good luck. And it's a very interesting way to start a a book in a children's series, but also... It really, uh, it sets a tone. It, it lets you know things are changing. There's an escalation. I think one of the other things that makes this chapter sort of incredibly compelling is that it's very detailed in describing things within its very narrow focus. So while we as the reader know exactly what's happening in each moment, there's good details, not a lot of light in the room, creaky floors, bit of light coming in through the hall window, like very very detailed in the moment the context and the relevancy of everything is very vague so we have this narrow focus on detail, existing in like a vague fog that's very reminiscent of the first chapter in book one, where you also get, there's a cat. The cat looks like this. The cat is sitting here on this street in this town. And you're like, okay, I know exactly what's happening, but I do not know what any of this means. <laughs> and like, it's very interesting how they parallel each other in that way, um, which I think says a lot about sort of, it's almost like this is a a new start. Like it's a, it's a start to the, franchise being more mature and darker and different. It's the same story, but it's gonna come to us in a different way now. And it's interesting how it's
0: sort of painted as a new beginning, kind of. I definitely think we kind of see that because um, ending Prisoner of Azkaban, it's like we kind of get the hints that like, something, Voldemort is gonna come back because he's absent for most of a uh, Prisoner of Azkaban or all of Prisoner of Azkaban really. Yeah. So we knew that Peter was gonna go back to him. So this is kind of the start of like, oh, Voldemort's gonna be a big player in this book. The bitch is back. Like things are gonna get
1: serious. I I, I hope everyone know when I said the bitch is back, it was to the tune of the witch is back in Hocus Pocus.
0: Yeah, but do you have any, uh, I guess, any more points before we wrap this up?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I have a lot of opinions on this chapter, just sort of on its own as a piece of like literature. I honestly think this might be one of the most well-written chapters in the series. And Harry's not even in it. I think to some extent, that's why it's able to be so well-written is there's no limitation on like being authentic to the character of Harry. Yeah. So that takes away that limitation and allows the author to really write like a, a compelling story in one chapter. And I enjoy it. Um, I think that you really sympathize with this character Frank you get to know Frank and then he's killed it sort of shows the escalation of the severity of the consequences the fact that we get so much for this character who purely exists as a vessel for Voldemort's story is brilliant and then the fact that the death of this character serves to remind the readers how cruel and like real world the consequences of Voldemort's actions are it's like such a fulfilling chapter that like pulls you in emotionally and then stomps you down. <laughs> but in it, it like it it's a full story in itself while also not touching any of Harry Potter's franchise's main protagonists, but just sprinkling in enough to like, get you emotionally where you need to be. It's an emotional journey to get you to a certain place. And I think it's very effective at doing that. So I guess my final take on this chapter as a whole is that it does a really, really good job of physically and emotionally setting the darker tone with the riddle house itself sort of serving as the metaphor. It's dark, there's no lights on, and bad things are happening. And uh, yeah kind of in summation, the lights are out and it's dark. It's funny. I feel like um, I'm ready for the bigger books. Like, I feel like talking about each of the chapters in the earlier books for, like, an hour, there's going to be more to talk about, I think, in the longer books, and there's going to be more, like, serious content, and I'm excited for that, you know? The fairy tales are fun, but it's getting more adult, and I feel like I have ideas and thoughts and more opinions on some of this stuff because it's really easy to say in the first three books they're children and they're doing childish things and that's why this is happening like they're you know and now that they become adults it's we can hold them more accountable for their actions and that's fun
0: i'm definitely really excited for this book for just like all the new characters we get to talk about and the new uh places we get to go and everything so thanks for listening to this episode (laughs) Thanks for coming out. Uh, Tune back next time while we jump into chapter two of Gobbled of Fire, The Scar. If you have any thoughts about this episode or previous episodes, you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on social media at potteryvisited and we will see you next time. Bye.